Hello. I'm Blake Oakley. It's nice to meet you. Um, I'm thinking about going to the zoo later today. Before I do that, I'll probably have lunch across the street at Anon. I'll probably order the pad to you. That's that's about what you need to know about me. Um, here in my hands, I have a box that says Pastor Peter prayer cards. Not next week, but the week after. Our head pastor, Pastor Peter, will be returning. And uh, just want to remind you, in your bulletins, pull out the little card. Uh, as you can see, it's cleverly worded so that you can say pretty much anything you want to say on it. But this box will soon be downstairs at the Connection Corner. If you would, return that card in um, over the course of the next two weeks. It's the little table downstairs. Um, so yes, the plan is for Pastor Peter to come back and to return to the subject of the Holy Spirit. In the meantime, he sent me a very robust email asking if I would discuss my own personal relationship with the Holy Spirit. And um, I saw it was sort of a, a sort of a funny question to ask. It's not a question that you really get asked often, even if you've been going to church all of your life. So I could ask you the question, for example, how is your personal relationship with your spouse, or how are things at work with your with your coworkers? Um, are things going okay with your parents, or mm, do you have do you have a good relationship with your boss? These are if I were to ask you these questions, it would evoke some sort of emotion. You would have words to use to describe your relationship. You would actually have something to say. We would probably have a conversation. And even if you grew up in church, I might ask you the question: Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? And that's understandable. Jesus was. Uh, God in the flesh. He was a human. We can actually read about actions that he performed, attitudes that he had, words that he spoke. And so we can have some sort of relationship with him, especially since he died, rose again, and is seated on his throne in heaven, and he is living today. And we relate to him because of his humanness. But what about this question? Do you have a personal relationship with the Holy Spirit. What, is, what does that mean? How does, how does the Holy Spirit fit into this whole conversation? Is it even an appropriate question to ask here in church? I want to read a quote by R.A. Torrey from his book, The Person and Work of the Holy Spirit. I don't agree with everything that's said in this book, but I really like this quote. He says, herein lies the whole secret of a real Christian life, a life of liberty and joy and power and fullness. To have as one's ever-present friend and to be conscious that one has as his ever-present friend the Holy Spirit and to surrender one's life in all of its departments entirely to his control. This is true Christian living. Hmm. It, it blows my mind a little bit. Are we really meant to be emphasizing the Holy Spirit that much? The reality is, even if this is true a little bit, I think we in the American church have severely underestimated the role of the Holy Spirit in our day-to-day lives. And if I'm going to stand up here and be honest with you, this, this is not what my relationship with the Holy Spirit looks like. Especially starting out. I, instead of being a friend or comrade or partner, to me the Holy Spirit was just mystery. 
my relationship with the Holy Spirit began as a simple mystery. And maybe that describes you. And if it does describe you, that's okay, because that's where we're going to start. And so here's, here's, here's the, the plan of action here. We're going to talk about what does it mean for the Holy Spirit to be mystery, okay, first. Second, we're going to talk about what does it mean for the Holy Spirit to be a part of what we call the Trinity. Third and fourth, we're going to talk about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Okay? And this movement, one, two, three, four, this flow really represents my own struggle to come into a deeper knowledge of and to end in a deeper relationship with the person of the Holy Spirit. And so I just want you to join me and walk through this with me, and we'll look at some scripture, and uh, we'll have some fun. So if you would, uh, before we get started, will you just bow your heads in prayer, in prayer and pray with me to invite the Holy Spirit to be our teacher today. Holy Spirit, we pray to you asking that you would open our eyes, that you would transform our minds, that you would be our teacher today. Father God, we ask that you would give us courage to step into the mystery that is your Spirit. And maybe for some today, this would be the first step into a mystery that will play such a significant part in their life. Father, we thank you. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. If you would, turn to the Gospel of John, the third chapter. Jesus is having a little uh, secret late-night session with one of the Pharisees. And here's what happens, starting with verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God God, unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. And so Jesus is is making this interesting metaphor. He's saying that the action of the Spirit, he's saying that those who are truly led by the Spirit are like the wind. Why? The wind blows wherever it will blow. The wind doesn't blow according to our will. The course of the wind is not set according to the desires of humans. And so there's some element of hiddenness about what the Holy Spirit is up to. There's something, there's something elusive about its nature. There's some sort of whispering quietness in the way that it acts and moves. The Holy Spirit 
is mysterious. Is that okay? Is it okay for us to admit that? The Australian theologian, uh, Graham Cole, I was actually fortunate enough to have Dr. Cole as my academic advisor for a period of time, but he wrote, he wrote this book called He Who Gives Life, and it was basically the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, this whole, whole systematic theology of everything that we're supposed to believe about the Holy Spirit. But the interesting thing is, he starts his doctrine of the Holy Spirit with an extremely large section about mystery and how we as Christians need to learn how to appreciate and also embrace the mysterious nature of God before we can even hope to take a step towards understanding who the person of the Holy Spirit is. I found this very interesting that I, so I need to be okay with mystery in order to step into the mystery and gain a little bit of knowledge. And so he says three things about uh, what it means to learn to be comfortable with mystery. The first, he says, uh, it's a spiritually healthy thing to admit that God is not fully comprehensible by the human mind. That's the first thing he says. Second, he says that mystery, it's not, it's not like some puzzle that you have to solve. It's not like a riddle that you're trying to guess at. When we were, use the word mystery, saying that God is mysterious simply means taking a position of humility about what we can and cannot know about God. And how presumptuous would it be to say, oh, God, you know, yes, I totally know everything about him. No, mystery, admitting that there's an element of mystery is simply taking a position of humility. The third and uh, very interesting thing he says about mystery is he says, mystery is like the more that you step into it, the more that you learn about something that's mysterious, the more you realize how big the mystery is in the first place. And I believe this is a principle that's true about life in anything. So whether it's chemistry or um, football or business, or whatever, whatever it is that you do. And so just let me give you an example from my own personal life. I happen to be an avid chess player. It's just something that I enjoy doing. Carlton knows. <laughs> um, one, of my, one of my big venues right now is the Warming Center, if you want to stop by for a game. Uh, I take all comers. Um, but chess. So if you were to ask me, before, before I knew anything about chess... If you were, you know, I was like, you know, a little child, and you come up and say, Blake, what is it that you don't know about the game of chess? I don't know. I don't, I mean, I don't know how the pieces move. That's about it. I mean, teach me how the pieces move, and I can play chess. Isn't that right? I mean, that's all there is to it. And so I take a step into the mystery that is chess. And this is the knight. It moves in an L shape. This is the bishop. It moves diagonally. This is the queen. It just can go wherever it wants to go. And I learn about all the pieces and how they move. But then I realized that the mystery of chess was really bigger than I first imagined. I, 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 it's like a little light in the middle of a huge sort of veiled area. The closer I try to examine the light the more veil I realize is actually there than was in the first place. I become more aware of the grandiose mystery that is chess because I learn how the pieces move and I try to play a game and all of a sudden I, I realize, wait a second, I don't know <laughs> how to make a plan. Um, I didn't realize I didn't know this, but now that I've learned this thing, I realize that I don't know all these other things, that there's actual strategy that you're supposed to have when you're playing this game of chess. And so the mystery just explodes in my mind. And then I take a step further, and maybe I read a book about, okay, strategy. It's best if you place the knights here on advanced support points. It's best if the bishops, you move them to open diagonals so that they have greater influence over the board. So I learn something about the strategy. But then I take a step, another step. I have a little bit more knowledge, but then the mystery explodes again. And I realize, wait a second. 
there's, there's different styles of play, and the styles of play have evolved over all these years since chess was invented 1,500 years ago. And there's, you know, aggressive style or defensive. There's open positions, closed positions. There's positional play. There's tactical play. You didn't know all this about chess, did you? There's a lot that you don't know about chess. But see, this to me is an accurate representation of my relationship with the Holy Spirit. It's just, okay, well, the Holy Spirit's a mystery. Well, let's, let's just take a step into that mystery. Whoa. No, the Holy Spirit is a mystery. You think you gain a little bit knowledge. You think you gain a little knowledge removes the mystery. No. It expands the mystery. And this is not something to mourn. It's not something to lament. It's not something to be sad about. It's something to be celebrated. Because it reveals something about the nature of God. How big He is. How in, you know, unfathomable He is to our pathetic human minds. And so instead of, instead of being afraid of stepping into the mystery and, and, and not being courageous, instead we're motivated because of this to dig in and to learn something about the Holy Spirit. So that's mystery. Let's talk about Trinity. My first step into the mystery of the Holy Spirit as a young Sunday school attendee was understanding that God is one being that has three persons. <laughs> It's, you know, when we, when I say, oh, hey, what's up, Anthony? I'm talking to a human being. And I understand, oh, one human being equals one person. So it's hard for us to comprehend the fact that God is one being, but he doesn't just have one person, he has three persons. And what does this mean? And I think there's been a lot of failed attempts at trying to understand this. Like, well, it's like the motor, the engine on a car, it turns the lights on, makes the windshield wipers go, and I don't know, what's another function of a car? Rolls the window down or something. It's not, it's not you know, it's not, I don't know, that doesn't really work. It's not, it's not just three functions. We're talking about three separate persons. Or, you know, uh, it's H2O, but there's steam, and there's solid ice, and there's liquid water. You know, air, solid, liquid. And it's like three manifestations of the same thing. But they're not really manifestations. They're three different persons. And so I'm not sure that the metaphors that we commonly use really work. The Holy Spirit is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is God. And the Son is God. And the Father is God. Mystery. But even though it's a mystery, and um, even though, I mean, obviously there is a knowability to God. You know, God is self-revealing. He, he, he reveals himself through his word. He reveals himself through the person of Christ who lived an actual human life on earth. But just, you know, God is knowable, but his nature is just so mysterious. So, where am I here? Eugene Peterson, uh, he wrote the message. He also wrote this book called Christ Plays in 10,000 Places. And what he does is he explores this mystery of the Trinity. And he says, you know, the fact that the Trinity is mysterious is actually can tell us something about the nature of God. And so he says, he, he, he say, he says three things about what the Trinity tells us about God and how this segues into the Holy Spirit. The first thing that uh, what we can know about Trinity. Number one, God is both personal and he's interpersonal. That is to say, God is personal, so he has a relationship with those outside of his being, but he's also interpersonal. He has a relationship with those persons inside of his being. So God is sort of like a, a community unto himself. The fact that we're a community here means that there's a lot of different persons who have gathered together. The fact that God is Trinity means that he is a community unto himself. And that community participates in many different actions. Holy creation, where 
God brings everything into being. Holy salvation, where God redeems everything. Holy community, where God puts together a church. And these are all Trinitarian actions. He did, there, God doesn't need some, a force or a person outside of his own being in order to accomplish these actions. He's a community that does all of it himself. And so our response is simply, wait, be patient. Let ourselves be invited to participate in these Trinitarian activities. The second thing Eugene Peterson says about Trinity is that the Trinity prevents us from reducing God down to what we can merely understand. And it's an important feature about the Trinity. The third thing he says, the Trinity does not let us to use God as a commodity for our immediate expectations. As humans, we have these shallow needs and shallow wants, and you know, we can throw something in the microwave and consume it in a few seconds. And so when it comes to spirituality, when it comes to the things of God, our culture has trained us to think, oh, okay, God, I can just use him as a commodity to meet this expectation here. I can just plug him in here. No, the Trinity introduces an element of mystery that doesn't let us do that. Okay, so the three important things that we know about the Trinity. Now, what does this say about the Holy Spirit. It says that the Holy Spirit is personal because God is personal. We can't use God as a commodity because he is a per, he, he's a personable being. More specifically, he's a tri-personal being. And um, what does this mean about how we relate to God? Because it, it, challenge, it challenged me as a young churchgoer trying to wrap my mind around the Trinity. If there's, any, if there's one thing the Trinity does teach us is that God is personal, how does, how does this affect how I relate to God? How does this affect my relationship with something invisible, something not human, the Holy Spirit? The theologian Fred Sanders, he, he addressed this issue in a, in a book called the, the Deep Things of God, How the Trinity Changes Everything. I recommend it to you. Fred Sanders, The Deep Things of God. Here's what he says about the fact that God is personal. He says, Not everyone experiences the doctrine of the Trinity as something helpful to their prayers. Quite the contrary. Many Christians are getting along just fine saying prayers to God without a single Trinitarian thought in their heads. And when a well-meaning theologian asks them to take the Trinity into account, things fall apart. They thank the Father for dying on the cross. They thank Jesus for sending His only Son. And they suddenly realize that they have no clear ideas whatsoever about the Holy Spirit. Befuddled, they retreat to just praying to God in general, but find no comfort there because they can't imagine what God means in Trinitarian terms, and they wonder who they've been talking to all these years. He goes on to quote Robert Speer, who says, You cannot find a single prayer of Christ addressed to God, not one. Nor can you find a single prayer of Christ in which he so much as mentions God. How often do we as Christians pray to this impersonal force that in our minds we just call God? We just stick that label on. The Trinity doesn't let us do that. The Trinity says God is personal. The Holy Spirit is personal. It's when we interact with Him, when we speak with Him, it's time to start treating Him like a person and allow ourselves to be treated as if He is a person. Which brings me to the third step into mystery that I took in my journey to be in relationship with the Holy Spirit. So I sort of, uh, I know how the chess pieces move now. I have an idea of how to formulate some sort of chess strategy, but then the, the mystery expands and take another step into it. What does it mean that the Holy Spirit is a, is a person? This happened 
maybe around like right right before I went to college as a young churchgoer, and I I actually started taking reading the Bible a little more seriously than I had been before, and I would come across these passages that would that would talk about the Holy Spirit. And I would, I would look at them and be like, wait a second, the, the things that are being talked about here, you can't, you can't say that the Holy Spirit is just some, like, force that is, that, you know, is keeping everything in order, that is just, you know, that's just moving everything along, because it would use very personable attributes to talk about the Holy Spirit. Here's three ways that the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit. The first, the first way is this. The Holy Spirit, it talks about the Holy Spirit as having a personality. And so, in so many of the verses that you'll read, it talks about the Holy Spirit having knowledge about something. Only a person can have knowledge about something. It talks about the Holy Spirit having feelings and emotions reacting to certain things and actions that occur. Only a person can do that. It talks about the Holy Spirit having desires Specifically, the necessity for our desires to decrease and be replaced by the desires of the Holy Spirit. Only a person can have the desires. The second, the second way in which the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit, referring to the actions of the Holy Spirit. And just shoot through these. <laughs> I'm taking a bit of time here. But the, the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit speaking the Holy Spirit searching, the Holy Spirit crying out, the Holy Spirit praying, the Holy Spirit testifying, the Holy Spirit teaching, the Holy Spirit leading, the Holy Spirit calling. These aren't merely metaphors. These are actual things that a person is doing in the world, in our lives, amongst our community. The third way the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit as a person, it talks about how the Holy Spirit can be treated and so, for an example, the Holy Spirit can be rebelled against. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. The Holy Spirit can be insulted. The Holy Spirit can be lied to. The Holy Spirit can be blasphemed. These are things that, these are actions that the Holy Spirit receives, but it's only a person can be treated in such a way. So this next step into the mystery is understanding why the Holy Spirit really is a person, feelings, knowledge, desires, actions, speaking, crying out, praying on our behalf, testifying with our spirit. The Holy, it can be treated in a certain way. And here's what I began to realize. When I became a, a thoughtful college student, I began to realize, wait, so if the Holy Spirit is a person, and I'm reading about all these actions, all these works of the Holy Spirit. That means that He's been there the entire time. And so what I had to do, to be honest about you know, what I've learned and challenged, you know, the mystery is challenging me to do this, is looking back retrospectively over the course of my life and recognizing where was the Holy Spirit in that moment? Because in that moment, I didn't see Him there. In that moment, He was alive and at work, and He was also ignored. Where was He there? And so I had to take another step into the mystery. And this brings us to the final part, the works of the Holy Spirit. There are three, the number three is very popular today, isn't it? There are three different works of the Holy Spirit that I want to talk about, that I've seen happen in my own life, that has drawn me deeper into relationship with Him. The first work is this, work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit makes us new. The Holy Spirit makes us new. The fancy term for this is regeneration. We see this in um, Titus chapter 3. 
The idea behind regeneration or the Holy Spirit making things new just means uh, to, to regenerate something means it's just coming back to life. Uh, it's given a fresh start. It's renewed. And so Titus 3, verses 4 through 7, say this, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. And so we see the work of Jesus Christ on the cross makes it a possibility for us to enter into salvation. And when we submit and believe that Jesus was who He said He was and He did what He said He did, then the work of the Holy Spirit occurs. The Holy Spirit comes in and it makes our spirit new. So you see the two different roles, the Son and the Holy Spirit. So Paul, who was who wrote, who wrote that letter to, to Titus, we see this happening in his own, own life. In Acts chapter 9, Paul, his spirit, gets regenerated because he comes into a saving knowledge of Christ Jesus. And we see the immediate consequences of this making new, of this rebirth. Because Paul goes from someone who was just giving murderous threats to the disciples of Christ to a few days later, someone who was preaching that Jesus Christ was the Son of God in the synagogue after he got through uh, the road on Damascus. So we see this immediate consequence of the Holy Spirit's work in his life. How does this look in my own life? I came to faith in Jesus Christ as, as a child, I didn't understand all the complexities, but I understood very simply what does it mean to have Jesus be the leader of your life. And of course, I knew absolutely nothing about the Holy Spirit. But He was there, and He was active. And I can see the consequences retrospectively as I look back how terrified I was before I laid my life down for Christ how my life was just shackled by fear. You know, my parents would just take me to some new place or to summer camp or something, and I, couldn't, I could not function. I could not do it. And it wasn't too soon after that I became a Christian, that I just submitted to Jesus Christ, that all of a sudden, fear just didn't have as, as strong as a hold on my life as it once did. Obviously, there were still struggles, but there was just something about this sort of this a, new, a new life, a rebirth. There's some, there's some consequence there that was immediate. How has the Holy Spirit worked in your life in that way? How has He made things new? How has He regenerated you? The second work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit tells us that we are God's children. The fancy term for this is adoption. We read about this in the 8th chapter of Romans. Looking at verse 14. Oh, we'll start with verse 13. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. 
Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings and order that we may also share in his glory. So we see the entire cast here, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit participating in this act of adoption, this work of the Holy Spirit, telling our spirit, you are children of God. And I want to make a comment here uh, because just glancing at the scripture, you might say, this is some... This is some gender-exclusive language here. <laughs> Talking about us being sonship, why not you know, ch- into the childhood or into the daughtership? Why sonship? I don't think, I don't think necessarily the, the language is to exclude. Because in the culture of the day, the idea is that it, it was the firstborn son that received the totality of the inheritance. The totality, the large part of the inheritance. And Christ is someone who is called the firstborn of creation. And so it's, not, it's not, to, not to exclude because the reality is no matter, no matter if male, female, Jew, Gentile, slave, or free, all are welcome into the salvation that is offered in Christ Jesus. The idea that it is Christ Jesus who is the firstborn of creation. He is the Son of God. And what the work of the Spirit does is that it pulls us into our participation with His Sonship. And we, when we get pulled into that Sonship, I mean, something far, far more significant than just having our guilt removed happens. It's not, it's not just having a new life. It's inheriting every single spiritual gift that God the Father is pouring out onto Jesus, the Son. That inheritance becomes ours. It's a radical thing. Being invited into a participation of His Sonship. And so the spiritual inheritance is not given on the basis of gender, or economic class, or ethnicity, but because Jesus Christ is the firstborn of creation, it's one of the primary works of the Holy Spirit to bring us into that sonship, the work of adoption. This is a little... I just want to bring it down. Bring the mystery down to earth a little bit. When I was a kid, I had a, a little bit of trouble keeping my room clean. I mostly blame my, I blame my younger brother, to be honest. I, think, I, I, to this day, say that it was mostly his fault. But the problem was my parents had to keep over and over and over again asking me, you know, clean your room, you know, clean up that mess. You know, what, you know, what is that? That's not acceptable. Take that under the bed. Put it where it belongs. You know, things like that. And so it got, it got to the point, though, where uh, we had to, had to have a little meeting my parents and I, because some rules needed to be established. Uh, Here's the rule. No longer will you be able to go and play outside, my favorite activity as a young child, unless your room is clean. Ah. And so we have the establishment of a law that needs to be followed. If this, then you must do this, a covenant, if you will. And if, I mean, while, so while my parents, yes, it was their desire. I mean, you know, it was, it was my room. It's a part of their house. They want their house to look nice. They want my room to be clean. But really, isn't there a deeper desire there? There's a deeper desire on the part of the parents, not just for the child just to follow the rules, but for the desire of the child to change. Isn't it, isn't it the desire of the parent for the child to clean his room, not just because, I, you know, I just want to go outside and play, so let's get this over with, but because I'm cleaning the room because it's my room. I'm taking some ownership here. <laughs> and here's the thing. It's not, it's not my room 
because I put a down payment and I pay a mortgage every, every month. It's my room because I'm my father's child. And as a, the, the simple ways that a child thinks, they don't see it as there. It's just because the child is just locked by his own sort of immature thinking, the child may as well be a slave. Because, you know, well, I just got to follow the rules. And the child doesn't recognize that, no, everything that the father has is yours. This is your inheritance. Come into an ownership of this. Clean your room. It became a delight to clean my room because it was my domain. (laughs) What changed? Understanding who you are as a son or as a daughter of the living God changes the way you live your life. The law, the law, the law was right. Okay? The law promoted a right action. The law said your room must be clean. The law was right, but the law didn't have power to transform the way I thought. It was my understanding as a child of my father, that changed the way. It changed my actions. It changed the way I thought. And it'll change the way that you live. Being told that you're a son, being told that you're a daughter, is one of the most significant works of the Holy Spirit. The third work of the Holy Spirit The Holy Spirit sets us apart. The Holy, Spirit, the Holy Spirit sets us apart for holy living. The fancy term for this is sanctification. You can think of sanctification like this. The process of being made holy or the process of, of being transformed. It's the process of holification. You're being holified. You're being made into a holy being. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting with verse 16. Yeah, chapter 3. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Being set apart, being made holy, being sanctified is a work of the Spirit. And so we think of, of your salvation, okay? We all understand salvation does not happen on your own effort. It's the work of the person of Christ. Living out the Christian life, being made holy, living according to God's will, being set apart, whatever synonym you want to use, does not happen on our own effort. It happens because of the work of the person of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Too many churches are missing this. The Bible talks about this issue of sanctification in some different ways. It uses the word in different ways. So, for example, when we look at the Old Testament, it can talk about the sanctified shovel. The, the shovel that is set apart from the rest of the shovels. Why? The rest of the shovels are used for digging holes, to build houses, or to dig holes in your backyard, or whatnot. The sanctified shovel, the shovel that is set apart, is used to remove the ashes that are left over from the burnt offerings, the sacrifices that were made on the holy altar. You can't use a digging hole shovel for this work. You need a special shovel, a set-apart shovel. The shovel needs to be removed from the rest of the shovels because it has a unique purpose. It has a destiny, in a sense. The clothing in the Old Testament. 
the garments that the high priest wears, it, they're not just, it's not just like regular clothes that you work in or go to the marketplace in. The garments that the high priest wears, they have to be a certain color. They have to be a certain length. There has to be a certain ritual of the sprinkling of the blood. All these things are done to sanctify the garments, to set the garments apart from the rest of just regular clothing. Why? Because the garments have a special purpose. They have a distinct destiny. So when we talk about the work of the Holy Spirit sanctifying us, making us holy, setting us apart, the reality is that we, as the children of God, are set apart for a unique destiny. It was a destiny that was laid out before us, beforehand, a pre-destiny, if you want to use that terminology. What is this destiny? What, what, is it, what is this work of the Holy Spirit? It is to, for us to conform, to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. So this is, this is us undergoing the process of holification, of being sanctified. We see this happening in the life of Paul. In Romans chapter 7, we see Paul struggling with this process of holy living, this process of, of living out the will of God. He says, and he's very honest, he just says, I do the things I don't want to do. I do the things that I hate. And so there's something about what he's saying. It's obvious that his desires have been changed by the active work of the Holy Spirit in his life. And yet there's still a struggle, there's still a process in living out his destiny to become like Christ. The reality is, every single day is a new challenge to submit to the work of the Holy Spirit, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And that's why it's a relationship. It's a day-to-day experiential living out, not by your own effort, but by a submission to the power that is unleashed when you come into relationship with the Holy Spirit. What does this look like in my own life? This is something sort of very personal to me because it's happening just ongoing, even now. It's like I go, I go throughout my life and one of the biggest convictions that I have currently right now is I want, I want to see myself living a disciplined life, a life that has things in order. You know, whether it's my eating habits or my sleeping patterns or the balance between studying and working and engaging other people in relationships, I wanna, I, I'm convicted by the Spirit to implement uh, a rhythm. Now listen to me. It might sound presumptuous to say that I can do all these things. I'm not saying that. If I were to use my own effort to try to instill discipline in my life, what's going to happen? There's just going to be me trying to force every single aspect of my life into this rigid structure and this meaningless routine. But if I submit to the power of the Holy Spirit, there's a flexible rhythm of life. Why? Because I let Him transform the way I think, the way I act, and all of a sudden, my life enters into this flexible rhythm that reflects the person, the nature of God. Because God is the God of order. And what my desire is, my desire that stems not from my own spirit, but from the Holy Spirit inside of me, my desire is to enter into a situation where there is disorder and establish an order because God is the God of an order. And so I'm being an image bearer of who God is. I'm being changed. I'm being set apart. What, what does this look like in your life? How is the Holy Spirit speaking to you? You're here today, and if you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit indwelling inside of you. What I want us to do now is just create some space to submit 
to what the Holy Spirit is speaking to us. What is it? How does he want you? How how is he how is he trying to set you apart? Is it your marriage? Your marriage, two people coming together, making one flesh. How is that? Just you're being an image bearer of God as a Trinity, multiple persons coming together in unity, as a community that is one. Maybe it's changing the way that you live your life in, in regards to honesty. Just being, just there's this desire inside of you just to be more honest with yourself and be more honest with the people around you. Why? Because that reflects the nature of God as God is truth. I invite you to just sit in silence and wait and say this simple prayer. Holy Spirit, speak to me. Holy Spirit, work in me. Maybe this is the time where you need to look back, to be intentionally retrospective and looking at all the instances, all the moments in your life. It's like, oh, that's where the Holy Spirit was working. Ah, that's, that's how he was active and alive in my life at that moment. So let us pray together as we open this time of response. Holy Spirit, we ask you to come. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would use this space to speak to us. We desire not only a greater knowledge of who you are, but we ask that you would draw us into a deeper personal relationship with you. We dedicate this time to you. Help us to reflect on all the times that you were present and active. All the times that you were ministering to us. this space to make your desires our desires. Let's read our corporate benediction together. Come, O Holy Spirit, come as holy fire and burn in us. Come as holy wind and cleanse us within. Come as holy light and lead us in the darkness. Come as holy truth and dispel our ignorance. Come as holy power and enable our weakness. Come as holy life and dwell in us. Convict us, convert us, consecrate us until we are set free from the service of ourselves to be your servants to the world.